Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I have an interview for you with Carrie Callahan. Carrie Callahan was featured in an article in The Atlantic written by Jesse Single titled When Children Say They're Trans. Now, Carrie Callahan is a detransitioner. I think that that was something that she's gone through. I don't think that's her identity um, because she's no longer trans. She went from female to male, and then back to female. Carrie and I speak a lot about the trans identity, trans activism, and trans society, and how the trans issue is playing itself out right now in the public sphere, in public media, and so on and so forth. And here you go. I mostly work with um, ADHD kids. Oh. Um, Yeah, it's great. It's a lot of oppositional defiant disorder, which I like. Uh, do, Do you see yourself in them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why it works out. Yeah. I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for those yeah. little ODD kids. You reached out to me about the um, the article, The Sadness of a New Vagina by Andrea Longshu. Right. My new vagina won't make me happy yeah. by Andrea Longshu. The Sadness and... of a New Vagina. <laughs> oh, I'm so just sad. trying to make it in uh, a romantic poetry <laughs> mode, you know. <laughs> Maybe there is a lack of humor about these issues because they're the emotions are turned up so much. But do you do you did mm. comedy? You started out doing comedy, what ten years ago or something like that? Right. Yeah. So, do you still practice that or just in? in no. <laughs> yeah, a lot of internal comedy for certain. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't do any stand up or anything like that. Is there a correlation between? ADHD and the diagnoses, either self-diagnosis or uh, doctor diagnosis of gender dysphoria or any of the different Hmm. trans uh, diagnoses? So my understanding from the literature is that there is research that shows that trans-identified teenagers have very high comorbid rates of comorbid diagnoses. I don't know that ADHD has been documented. But things like bipolar have been documented, um, depression, anxiety, which makes a lot of sense. Um, Also... uh, Autism? Right. The autism comorbidity has been, like, extensively diagnosed. Okay. Um, And my, uh, my kind of theory about this is that a lot of these diagnoses have as part of their traits dissociative experiences Mm -hmm. so it is true that adhd kids um have dissociative experiences more than other kids and you wanted to speak about this article um by miss show or shoe yeah shoe i think because she brought up the article that thrust you into the national spotlight by Mm -hmm. jesse single uh, which is still contentious. And, and I, I follow Jesse on Twitter, and he's always kind of arguing his position because people keep misreading him. Uh, it seems like they take him out of context when he's talking about being wary about transition, 
uh, he's talking about within uh, thinking about like childhood or early early adulthood and and stuff like that, not right. necessarily a, adult transition. And people seem to like think that he's talking about adult when he's talking about the childhood stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So something that I've kind of noticed about this debate is that um, there is this assumption that if you have a, a view about one specific issue, then that leads into a whole slate of views and that y- hmm. you subscribe to a like an ideological partisanship kind of. Um, that article was about pediatric transition. So um, uh, I've spoken to single like just with, you know, in private conversations. And he's very clear that he's for informed consent for adults, um, which is a, a separate issue from informed consent treatment for minors, um, just like, you know, <laughs> how we treat minors is a separate issue from how we treat adults on most things, yeah. uh, like um, cigarettes and tattoos and joining the military. And we uh, do respect the age of 18 as um, a cutoff to your childhood. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what has been argued and was argued in uh, Miss Chu's essay was that um, using detransitioners in the story was a dog whistle to represent um, in an mm. anti-informed consent point of view when it comes to adult care. Okay. And I, I kind of take issue with the idea that like talking about me or other detransitioners or representing our viewpoint necessarily is an argument. Um, we exist and we're an emerging population and hmm. I think that's newsworthy regardless right. of how it reflects on other people's transitions. Yeah. She, I, I don't want to, I think I'm going to misquote her, but she says that detransitioners are a statistical, um, insignificant population or. Yeah. Yeah. She at least said statistically small. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's almost no research on rates of detransition. Um, there's what I found is one study out of oh. Sweden, which was a, a longitudinal study that was a public record search. Um, over the course of 40 years, they um, looked for people who had changed their gender legally and then um, changed it all the way back. Uh, so out of a sample of 681 people, they found 15 people who had done that, which translates to a 2.2 um, rate mm-hmm. of official detransition. Okay. Um, just to say, I wouldn't be counted as a detransitioner in that study. Um, because your transition I, only went so far or... Right, because I never legally changed my gender. Okay. And so I didn't legally change it back. So you have to do both things to be counted as a detransitioner in that study. But you underwent physical transition. Right. So I took hormones for nine months, um, which, yeah, is a medical intervention. Mm -hmm. How was that? And do do you mind talking about that, the experience of going on to testosterone, and then what caused you to decide that? wasn't working for you? Sure. Um, yeah, I was, uh, super excited to get on testosterone. It felt really great to be on testosterone. Um, uh, certainly it felt so good when I was on it that I, uh, believed that that was a sign that it was the correct thing to be doing because it felt Mm -hmm. so good. Um, and then I actually start, uh, stopped testosterone, not because I wanted to stop it, but because, uh, financially, uh, it wasn't working out. I was serving in restaurants and 
Uh, I was very poor at this time in my life. And uh, it, it became clear to me that I, I couldn't, um, at that point in my life, I couldn't keep taking testosterone and sustain myself financially. Hmm. So I was, it was not that I stopped being trans identified okay. when I stopped taking testosterone. I was trans identified still for about a year and a half after I stopped testosterone. And by trans identified, is that a different category than identifying um, yourself as a male? Oh, um, I guess it's a broader category for most of, for about half of the year and a half after I stopped testosterone, I still conceived of myself as a, a guy, as a trans guy. Okay. I just felt very sorry for myself that I was a trans guy who couldn't take testosterone because of financial reasons. Okay. Um, and then eventually I began to think harder about what I was doing to myself <laughs> and, uh, how I was making myself really, really sad. So, huh? And uh, sad internally, or or sad? Uh, did that sadness come from a mismatch with the way that society treated you, or was it? Did it have to do with your self perception? You know, I was very, very deep into the idea that I was a guy. Um, so during this time in my life, I, I, you know, really, truly believed that like I couldn't be happy until other people saw me as a guy. Uh, and so I was miserable. I was so sad. <laughs> I hmm. was, I mean, I was, I'm laughing, but I was suicidal at the time. Hmm. And, um, and, uh, I was at this time in my life, I was really, really obsessed with, um, the projections people were putting on me and people's perception of me. And, um, hmm. uh, you know, that's a really hard thing to pin your happiness on because it's, it is actually out of your control. So, um, luckily I had a, a sort of a wake up experience about like, Oh, I've really pinned my happiness on this thing that I cannot control. And that's, there are other things you could pin your sense of identity on or your hmm. sense of happiness. It seems like a lot of the, uh, the emotion and the tenacity of the language, like in another article that was just published in the New York Times, talking about Twitter's uh, new hate speech policies where misgendering and deadnaming people is now can get you banned. Somebody argues right. that that's okay because being misgendered and being uh, deadnamed is an assault on their existence. Mm. Which is which is problematic to me that your existence hinges on what other people say about you. Right. It's a lot of control to hand over to other people over your mental state. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, I, I think that there are parts of the trans community that are really focused on trying to do this really big cultural project of changing the expectations of manners between people. Hmm. Um and that's a huge project. <laughs> so, I mean, um, yeah, you know, I guess you can kick people off Twitter, but like in the end, you can't control how people perceive you. Mm -hmm. So you have to find some kind of sense of inner peace, regardless of how people are perceiving you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is rough for all of us. But yeah, I, I think that it's maybe a mistake of a lot of young people to like really focus on uh changing the world before they actually have their shit straight. Hmm. Um, so, but, uh, you know, um, finding a way to be okay, regardless of what the world is doing is really 
is a much harder project than hmm. trying to change the world. So, um, yes, I did. I would say that I honestly, for years, had um, kind of an obsessive interest in gender and gender roles and opening up gender roles. And while that project can be important, um, I think a lot of people should draw back from hmm. world changing projects until they're okay, regardless. Okay. So yeah. you think that in viewing like that upset, what you call like an obsession with these questions, do you think that it was uh, wasted time, wasted energy, or did you did you suss out any riddles about what goes on in our in our current culture with gender roles? Is there like nuance that we don't necessarily think about because you, you've studied this so long? Have you come to any conclusions about that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I still feel like I am learning more and more about um, like human systems and, and how mm. we all play off each other and, and shape each other because we really do shape each other. Okay. Um, so I feel like even right now, like I'm a, a lot of my clients are young boys. And so I feel like that's a whole new perspective on uh, hmm. how young boys get socialized and um like what traits are rewarded in boys and what aren't. And so I, I guess I think that hmm. this stuff is very complex. Yeah. Okay. So but it's so it, complex that I don't, I feel pretty stupid about it. So. <laughs> yeah. But you, you, in working with young boys, do you see yourself, do you question like the way that you treat them or do you find that like there's a natural way that you're okay with treating a boy as a boy, as a categorical entity separate than a girl or do you kind hmm. of work against that and try to teach them feminine traits or instill those oh quote oh wow um so I, I don't really think about so i guess when with with my younger clients i mostly am focused on trying to give them the skill sets that will help them navigate the world yeah right and since i'm working with a lot of adhd kids and ADHD is really correlated with oppositional defiant. Um, like a lot of my younger girl clients have the same um, troublesome patterns that my younger boy clients have. Um, I do think about kind of how the the different repercussions that will be for my younger mm. girl clients versus my younger boy clients. Mm -hmm. But for both those sets, like there's bad stuff that can happen to both sets. Yeah. I think that it's, you know, people thrive when they sort of are viewed as individuals first. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, you've kind of taken on kind of the, you're a poster child or a standard bearer for the detransition community because of the article by Jesse Single? Or have you gained a lot of uh, attention about that and hmm. you have to work with other people about that? Yeah, I do have to work with other people about it. I mean, um, so one thing, there are ways that I'm not the best spokesperson for detransitioners. Um, and one of those ways is that I was only on hormones for nine months. Mm -hmm. And I've taken steps to undo those physical changes, right? So hmm. um, these things that we do to our appearance, like, can be permanent. And... Um, so part of making sure that uh, especially that that detransition men and women can still go on to thrive and have whole lives is 
is unfortunately a, a cultural project of making sure that mm. visually gender non-conforming people can be okay, can walk down the street and not um, targeted by the cops or targeted by other mm. people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm pretty gender conforming in how I look, and um, and and that's not the case for every detransitioned woman. And so for detransitioned women to be safe, um, gender nonconforming women need to be safe, mm-hmm. and gender nonconforming men also. Yeah, going into a trans state was there a big community component to that, and yeah. then. Was there blowback for you when you exited that? Or did you have to leave that community in order to detransition? Did you have to detransition out of that community? I found that it was really important for my mental well-being to leave the community. Hmm. Um, Because, so uh, what was actually, (laughs) there were a lot of things that were really, really rough about detransitioning. But one is that people really would like you to stay another kind of trans. So when I made the decision that this isn't helpful to me, this internal idea I have that I'm different, that idea in and of itself is bad for me, like Mm -hmm. is leading to obsessive thoughts. Um, Hmm. I had many friends and, and coworkers, you know, try and assure me like you're genderqueer, you're non-binary. It's okay. We'll just call you they. And like, Hmm. I've, I've had, People call me they, <laughs> the minute someone knows I'm detransitioned, they call me they. And while they are trying to be nice people and make me feel comfortable, um, I hate it so much because hmm. it, it feels like, no, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Let me out. <laughs> like, hmm. I, I ditched the idea. Please let me out of your crew. Um, hmm. So I found that I needed a lot of space from the community. What is it? I've never worn the pronoun they. <laughs> is the, is well, it like you, a, is, well, I mean, at the very end of my time at college, I went to college late and I graduated a year and a half ago at the last, oh. the last year of college, they implemented the, everybody has to state their pronouns thing at the beginning of every course. And it was kind of like out of the blue. There was no talking about it. It was just the accepted thing to do and you had to declare what you were and this is just a pattern and I don't, I'm not necessarily critiquing this but it seemed like in general more women would be okay with a they she thing like I'm, I'm she or they and mm-hmm. and every once in a while yeah. a man would want to be a they but it's like to have the option to be a they almost it's like a shelter from the responsibility of being a she it seems like, uh, or, mm. or the responsibility of being a he. And, and by responsibility, I mean, you, you get to escape your, what you perceive you have to be as a gender, gendered entity. But yeah. what is a they, if, what is a they other than just an escape from the category? Is it a category itself? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, that I, I think I agree with you on a lot that it, it is so much about trying to escape from a set of projections that doesn't line up with how people experience themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are people who are more bothered by the projections we encounter than other people. I think a lot of the, and, and I think that both sets of projections can be very, very tough on people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my I am intimately acquainted with how the projections on female people can be tough on people. Mm-hmm. And I think that they, as like an absence of a set of projections, can be really can feel very powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not I'm not into lots of Instagrams of me wearing heavy lipstick and I'm not into like a soft using a soft voice and being nurturing and all this stuff. And there's all kinds of stuff that's very uncomfortable, especially if you do have something like an autism spectrum disorder or ADHD, or Mm. if your head works differently than you believe it should, Mm -hmm. then that space to escape projections can be very powerful. What what are your thoughts on the transgender trend? Is that a thing? Is that, I don't mean to be offensive, but Mm-hmm. Is there a phenomena of people seeing that being trans is cool and playing that game? And does that have backlash against people with severe gender dysphoria? Uh, does it actually like actually help by loosening up uh, societal uh, paradigms? Or, hmm. or is it just a way, is transgenderism just a word used to discount uh, a phenomena that people are now able to talk about, whereas before they weren't able to talk about? So I've been called a transgender a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, I think that transgender is a disrespectful way to speak about something real. Okay. Um, I think that social contagion is real. Uh, I think you can pretty clearly see that there are like trans cliques at high schools in, in a way that would have they would have been the emo clique in previous eras or mm-hmm. the goth clique. Um, and I'm not that concerned about it until medical interventions come into play, because mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, our our ideas about who we are um, are are constantly in flux and even on a society level is, are constantly on flux. However, our bodies are in flux when it comes to our bodies is a more uh, mm. uh, <laughs> heavy and permanent thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so. um yeah, I do believe in social contagion. I do think that if you have a group of friends that uh, is predominantly trans, like it, it, of course, like your friends affect your ideas. Mm-hmm. And of course, our ideas about the world are informed by who we know. Mm-hmm. The difficulty with the child transition is that once children especially men, I don't know, probably both sets, but uh, I I know trans women who are permanently male in their skeletal structure. So puberty actually modifies permanently the body. Uh, So the question is, is if medical technology advances to the point where one can look into the head of somebody and see that they are, they have the brain of a female uh, by by age 13, mm. and then put them on blockers. From your perspective, why is it something that should wait until somebody is an adult? Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's go even farther and say that, first of all, let's let's stick with the assumption that there are male and female brains, right? Like there's a okay. there's a, a structure okay. that we can identify. Yeah. I'm willing to take that assumption. That's great. Okay. Um, and then let's say that we can, we can identify it 13, you have a female brain, a a male body. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) there are upsides to transitioning as an adult. And one of the major upsides is that there's fertility preservation, right? Mm -hmm. So even if we did live in a world where you could do a brain scan and say like, oh, that 
13 year old has a female brain well you we don't know even if she would definitely be happy living her life as a trans woman um maybe she would also live her life being happy that she has like Mm. a bunch of sperm stored somewhere Mm -hmm. and like maybe it would also be important and honestly like maybe she'd be happy like being able to have orgasms (laughs) like that's important Mm. to a lot of adults you Mm. know and and um there's just so much that's not studied in what puberty Mm. blockers do not just to the skeletal structure or the appearance but also to our brain development yeah yeah our organs so Mm -hmm. it's a huge choice to be asking a 13 year old to make yeah, especially if we don't actually have the research. How are we going to get those that research then? Uh, uh, this is a huge ethical question. How are we going to get the research if we don't start experimenting on children? And <sighs> I, I'm sorry to lay that out there. I'm not agreeing with it, but yeah, how do we know? And, I, and, and people like really look at you weird if you talk about preserving people's right to their fertility. However, <laughs> like we also are talking about people's right to uh, there's no research on how puberty blockers affect orgasm over Mm. the lifetime so even if you think that it's weird to want to preserve the fertility of kids like Hmm. shouldn't (laughs) like it matters if we're (laughs) if we're baiting people to a life of not being able to orgasm is that of course that matters is that a major side effect that, that we know that that hormone blockers uh, interfere with the ability to have an orgasm? So there's no studies on this. And I bring it up because on a public post on the WPATH Facebook page, even really affirmative clinicians ask questions about like, what do we know about Mm. if a person has been on hormone blockers and then has um, gender confirmation surgery, what do we know about their ability to orgasm? So even the people who are totally on board, a hundred percent with pediatric transition are talking about the fact that we don't know how this is going to play out long term as far mm-hmm. as sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. Is there? Do you see that there's a lot of uh, squashing of those questions or deplatforming of questions in in the rush to make trans rights? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I would also say that to be someone who can be taken seriously by the trans medical establishment, you pretty much you you have to be okay with pediatric transition. Okay. I mean, it it does seem like in terms of priorities, um, squashing debate about pediatric transition is, is one of the top priorities of the people working in trans medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's kind of sad because there's other questions with healthcare for trans people that are incredibly important. Hmm. Um, and specifically about what happens as people age and mm-hmm. like effective medicine as people are aging. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but people are much more interested in the pediatric transition stuff. Oh, what do you mean much more interested in that? There, uh, like there's more unresolved questions or there's a rush to just accept it? There's a rush to produce research that justifies it. Oh, okay. And that kind of urgency, you do not see that in terms of research on, hey, what does it do to someone's lungs to take testosterone for 10 years. Why do you think there's such a urgency? Why is there such a rush? I, I think that there's an urgency because people see pediatric transition as, uh, this 
part of the puzzle that can kind of lay an ideological framework for hmm. trans rights. Hmm. Um, and I, and I think it's kind of unnecessary. I think that you can make the argument for trans rights based on autonomy, mm -hmm. um, and human rights. Um, but hmm. I, I think that there are people in the trans community who, who think that they really need to establish a narrative of like wrong brain. Um, okay. I mean, right brain, wrong, wrong body. Yeah. The trans issue has exploded so much in the last probably three or four years, maybe a little bit more, but in the last few years, it's like rapid onset trans rights issues. Like that's what we're going through. Somebody said, I can't remember where that, uh, once gay marriage became legal, there was a lot of activists that didn't have anything else to do. And so they flooded into trans rights. And that's just a theory. I'm not advocating that one way or the other, but it seems in the last few years, very recently, a lot of attention has come, uh, has been set upon trans rights and a lot of activity has been just rushed through about trans rights. Why do you think that it's come upon us so quickly? So I, I actually think that there are a couple of things going on, and I think that it's actually not just driven by people on the left. I think it's also driven by people on the right. Hmm. And I, I think it's in general driven by um, a media that needs to get like hmm. page views. You know, stuff about transition is inherently challenging and interesting. Hmm. Um, however, um, I, I could totally believe that there were a lot of out-of-work activists that were like, yeah, the next thing is trans rights. I also think that it's worth it to think about how we're this and what this being an issue that we talk about all the time does for the right. Yeah. Um, hmm. I think that it does a lot of really effective fundraising for them. I think it engages their church base. Hmm. Um, and I think that it actually does a whole lot for the right wing for the these issues to be um, at the top of the news. Mm -hmm. What do you find frustrating about trans rights activism, at least on the, on like the, how it's infiltrated and I, that's probably too strong of a word, but how it's uh, being implemented by large media corporations on the left, like Twitter and the New York times is running a lot of this stuff. I would say that the number one thing that I find frustrating about trans rights activism is the lack of strategy behind hmm. it. Um, I think that the trans community and not, and I don't want to think the whole trans community is doing it, but I think there are leaders in the trans community who show such cluelessness when it comes to how these things are going to be framed, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get Twitter to kick off people, what does that make you look like? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you look sympathetic. Mm. And, um, you know, there's a, yes, like the, the trans community and that viewpoint can have some success in like publishing op-eds in the New York Times. But like in terms of long, the long view mm. of moving public opinion and reshaping this like massive cultural project you're in, hmm. it, it doesn't do you any favors to have Twitter kick off gender critical feminists. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the thing that I find most frustrating is, is the lack of long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that has to do with the fact that like leadership in the trans community has nothing to do with any kind of democratic mechanism. Mm. It's got to do with like who gets famous on the internet. Hmm. And um, 
just because you're good at getting famous on the internet does not mean hmm. that you are good at communication strategy or political strategy. I mean, I, I do feel like the leaders in the trans community have set up complete softballs for the Alliance Defending Freedom, have set up hmm. circumstances where very obviously the ADF was going to come in and fund lawsuits. So, like, think ahead and don't set up those circumstances hmm. so that the ADF can fund lawsuits. Do you think that in a way, like, as the as this conversation matures, the uh, the people who are more strategic will actually within the trans community will actually get ahead of the people who are just in it right now and acting in a way that that's destructive to the end goal? I really do think so, because I the people who I the trans people who I have found most interested in the viewpoints of detransitioners have been um, young mm. trans people. Mm. Um, so I do think that just as as they mature and they, um, you know, get more power in their jobs, that um, the trans community will get better mm. at recognizing that part of an effective strategy is in some ways, like cultivating different viewpoints, there's different viewpoints that can still o agree on some main human rights goals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are, are you worried about the medical establishment? I, I know one, I know one psychologist, I have a psychologist friend who is very worried about uh, getting, losing his license for misdiagnosing somebody. He said at this point, he doesn't want to see anybody with gender issues because he can't even ask questions to figure out if it's like a sexual kink or if it's something deeper. Like he can't even get into that discussion to really accurately uh, diagnose what's going on with the person. And it seems like in psychology, that's a thing. And in the medical field, that's a thing. And how do yeah. we, how do we, <laughs> how do we advert that? Because that's going to end up, setting people down irrevocable paths, especially if it goes medical. I am really unsure about how we avert that. Um, you know, it, it, this rests on a couple of different things. I think that there's sort of a very simplistic education that a wide swath of counselors and therapists get now. Mm. Um, and we don't actually get um, those, those diagnoses in which a patient could mistake their symptoms for gender dysphoria are actually not diagnoses that we necessarily get great training on. Hmm. So for instance, in my graduate education, I sat through the, um, you know, um, gender bread man presentation. You know about this, right? The gender bread man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I saw that three times in grad school. In grad um, school? <laughs> I cannot remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I never saw a PowerPoint on dissociative symptoms. So, like, huh. when we set up counselors for this, like social workers and counselors and therapists, um, we are giving them a, a, a really simplistic sort of identity model for thinking about this stuff. But on the other end, like, OCD and dissociative symptoms and personality disorders um, and autism spectrum disorders, like, th those are things that you kind of need specialized training in to really mm -hmm. work with effectively. Hmm. So, yeah, I think that it's a mess. I think hmm. it's a mess. And I think that your friend is being smart to just be avoidant of the whole thing. Um, hmm. 
as as a detransitioned person, I probably would not ever work with a client with gender dysphoria because I uh, it would just make me way too vulnerable to accusations of conversion therapy. Oh wow! Um, so hmm. I, I just it's better if I avoid the whole thing as a therapist. How did the medical establishment get into the position of just having to accept this simplistic model of gender identity? I don't know, but I will say that all those presentations are folded into diversity education for counselors. Mm -hmm. So um, it sort of is presented as like, uh, here's a population, here's a very simplistic idea of how to work with them. Mm. Um, The same way that you would get a presentation on Asian Americans or... um, African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting because uh, you don't diagnose a race, There's right? No like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a totally it's different very, category, right? Huh. There are many opportunities for counselors and therapists to um, get to see the gender bread man, and mm-hmm. um, it sort of shut it shuts down a lot of critical thinking about I think what the patient is describing. Mm-hmm. You know, Mm because if someone comes in and says, like, uh, I'm in the wrong body, my body feels wrong, um, that that could be so many different things happening. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the medical field and the psychological field, which are, you know, they should be cutting edge fields. There's now like a institutionalized blind spot, like a, a shutting off of the critical thinking. Uh, and, and it's kind of like a social pressured uh, shutting down of critical thinking, which is just so damaging to people who have so much power, to fields that can change so much about you um, and really make you vulnerable. I mean, with psychology, you could, with the misuse of psychological tools, you can really screw people up and make them think things that is not are not true. And if you're now enforced by your institution to not think about things, you know, you're going to end up promulgating this bigger and bigger blind spot. And that's going to have a negative effect on people's lives. Right. But psychology as a field has a terrible track record and stuff like this. (laughs) Awful. (laughs) Like we're really bad at dumb group thing. We've gone through so many, every leading psychologist was like, yeah, okay, this is what's going on now. Um, Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I think this is just this 20 year periods, weird blind spot. Hmm. But do you, do you have faith in this psychological industry or field to recover from its mistakes? Or do you think it, it's always going to be prone to a new electroshock therapy, like a new... <laughs> right. Although that's coming back. <laughs> that's like, they found a way that's more effective to do that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what that... I think that it just... Um, I think there is an egotism to the field that hmm. like makes us vulnerable to this. And I think there's a... There's an egotistical savior thing that gets a lot of people in the field that, um, hmm. yeah, makes us vulnerable to thinking that we're the people that know better than the rest of the world and um, thus know that, yeah, hooking up electrodes to someone's skull can be a good yeah. idea or or cutting off part of their brain can be a good idea or cutting hmm. them off from their family and saying their family all were Satanists can be a good idea. We, yeah. we tend to think that we know best. How do you how do you personally uh, prevent yourself from an egotism that would end up being harmful to your patients? Oh, um, 
I mean, I guess just like for me, like lots and lots of supervision. And then, you know, I, I just, I think since I've had this experience and I've, you know, had bad experiences with hmm. therapists, mm-hmm. um, I think having some bad experiences with therapists can be a good thing for an eventual therapist. Um, so I think I'm really aware of like not making my patients super dependent on me, mm-hmm. um, having good boundaries. And yeah, I think just, it's just about humility. It's just about yeah. like knowing who you are there. You, as a therapist, you should be working to put yourself out of a job. Hmm. You should, the goal should be to end therapy so that that person yeah. can walk through the world being their own therapist and, and, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and confronting what is like a, a, a hostile, dangerous world mm-hmm. in a way that is, uh, may, you know, you want people to be able to thrive in a hostile, dangerous yeah. world because that's yeah. what adulthood is. A lot of jobs are you should be outmoding yourself. Activists mm-hmm. should look at their job as like, I need to put myself out of a job. I need activism to end, you know. Right. Um, yes. And it might be inherent in the progressive project where we have we're thinking there's always going to be another issue that we're going to we're never going to run out of issues, so I'll just run to the next issue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Activists should be thinking hard about whether they have an addiction to fighting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've just known so many activists where it's like, oh, this is about your dad. Like, this is not about the world. <laughs> this is about what your family was like. Um, huh. And I think the best ones... Um, are self-reflective about that so that they can stop fighting when it's time to stop fighting. I think you should, I don't know. I really liked your presence on camera. So if you, if you find a way to like do more videos like that, you're providing a lot of information that I thought was really great. So I want to encourage you to ignore the idiots. (laughs) (laughs) They're so dumb. It's really hard to deal with them. It's so hard to deal with them. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like that's part of that's one of the skill sets I got to learn is how to not let other people's dumbness bum me out. Yeah, you're speaking from a expertise that is very kind of very special and narrow, but has a lot of attention on it right now. But um, right. So you're attracting a lot of people who aren't going to find any use in what you're offering, because they can't see how it's useful. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I once had someone leave a comment that I had that I had come to the end of like um, some cycle, some like mythic cycle. And I was like, is this a conspiracy theory I've never heard about? So I like really so I like wikied it. But no, it was just something they had made up. And there's no. But yeah, I somehow reached this spiritual mythic cycle of cycling between male and female. So that's the kind of weird shit I get. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're you're a, you're a bodhitsa in somebody's spiritual system, <laughs> right? <laughs>